and welcome to NSTA The Bus Stop. This is the official podcast of the National School Transportation Association, and I am Kurt Mackison, Executive Director. And as we continue Women's History Month, we're pleased to have Becky Weber, Managing Partner of Prime Policy Group out of Washington, D.C., and the NSTA lobbyist as well. So welcome to NSTA The Bus Stop, Becky. Thanks, Kurt. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. And for folks who may not have heard our initial podcast, we probably did that last year at some point, and aren't exactly sure about you know you being the NSTA lobbyist and the Prime Policy Group. Can you talk a little bit about that? Let them know what Prime Policy Group does and what you do specifically for Prime Policy. Sure. Prime Policy Group is a bipartisan government relations firm in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've been in existence for about 40 years now. We are a medium-sized firm. We were one of the first firms to really embrace the bipartisan approach. Prior to that time, firms were either Republican firms or Democrat firms. And our founders realized before it was cool, I'd say, that um, you (laughs) needed to work, needed to be able to work in lots of different combinations of of power structures, you know, between the House, the Senate, and the White House. And we've certainly operated in, I think, every combination possible over our lifetime. We have had the great privilege to represent an STA and be your Washington, D.C. representatives for the bulk of that time. In fact, I think you are our second longest serving client that we that the firm has had. It uh, predates myself, but I have been at the firm for the last 20 years and have been leading the NSTA work along with the help of many, many of my colleagues. We really pride ourselves on working as a team. And I can go to a- anyone in the prime policy group sphere and ask for their help, depending on what we're working on. And, you know, we have energy and environment people, we have tax people, we have healthcare practice, we have judiciary immigration practice, hospitality practice. Obviously, I lead the transportation practice, but we are very adept at tapping into whoever we might need to advance a client's agenda. And we've certainly done that uh, with NSTA over the years with the variety of issues that you have asked us to work on here in D.C. Yeah, and it's been such a successful relationship. But some folks might just be exposed to, and, and it causes some fear, I'm sure, with some folks when they hear government relations or advocacy or, or lobbying in particular. But maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what are the things that, you know, you do in concert with NSTA? And it's not really just in concert with our government relations committee. I I mean, it's more than that. So why don't you frame that out for people and and give them a a, a little bit idea of what goes on normally? Sure. I I would say that the bulk of what government relations firm lobbyists do for clients, and this is certainly true for NSTA, is really education. It's our job primarily to educate members of Congress, their staffs, as well as the administration, both politically appointed officials and the career staff on the private school bus industry, who you are, what you do, 
how you do it, how a particular law or a regulation will impact the industry. And I always say this at at our annual bus ends, which we haven't been able to have over the last year, but hopefully those will resume at some point, is that what you're really doing is we help people exercise their First Amendment rights to petition your government for redress of grievances. And that's the the constitutional reason why lobbyists exist and and what we do is just really help entities like NSTA do that because your government is very complex and the legislative process can be very intimidating or the regulatory process can be very intimidating. So we kind of guide associations, corporate clients, public entities through that process and and try to help advocate for your priority issues. And that process includes everything from just kind of monitoring what's out there in legislation and regulations that might impact you, letting the association know when big bills are coming, figuring out, helping the association kind of figure out what your position will be on a particular issue, and then preparing the materials. And that might include, you know, one pagers. It might include drafting testimony before a congressional committee. It might include input on comments that are filed in the federal register, setting up meetings with members of Congress and agencies, building coalitions with other groups to advance an issue. It's the full gamut from, you know, we help clients from A to Z on all those parts that go into just trying to both protect the interests of school bus contractors, as well as defend against proposals that might harm or burden the industry. So my next question to you is going to compound question, but at least I'm giving you the benefit of knowing that it's a compound question. When we talked about legislative priorities for NSTA over the past year, I think there were some things that were obviously on our radar screen, but then other things that popped up as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, which made, you know, 2020 into 2021 a really, you know, challenging year. Can you talk to the folks a little bit about what some of those challenges were and some of the things where we were able to, as an organization, you know, see traction because of the work of Prime Policy Group? Sure. It has been a a super challenging year. I know for certainly for NSTA members, uh, probably the most challenging, certainly uh, in the last 20 that I've been associated with you all. And the COVID relief that we advocated for on, on many different levels, I can hit on a few of those, really occupied the bulk of our advocacy agenda over the last year. And and that is continuing into 2021. We started back in March kind of thinking about, well, what what do contractors need? As, you know, the schools started closing and we saw basically in March, April, 80% of the nation's schools were not meeting for in-person learning. The first bill that passed the Congress was called the CARES Act, if you recall that, the end of March. And what we really focused on in that bill was trying to get a provision that would force the school districts to pay contractors. That's what we spent our time on the Hill trying to get. And we did get a provision tied to the education funding that was being provided to K through 12 school districts. And we thought when it passed that that was going to be a silver bullet that was 
pretty much going to guarantee that even when your schools were closed, the contractors would be paid. But it had a phrase included in it to the greatest extent practicable that school districts should continue to pay their employees and their contractors. And unfortunately, that those those four or five words, however many they are, really immediately caused a lot of headaches because school district had to certify that they were complying with that in order to receive the funding. But they were many of them, as you all listeners painfully know, many of those districts just ignored the payment of contractors part of that uh, certification So we worked, again, tried to get it more in the next bill. We tried to remove that phrase, tried to work with the education department to make it tighter. Unfortunately, there just was really no support for really tying the district's hands that tight, despite our efforts. It did help to have that provision in there, just in terms of the district-by-district negotiations that contractors were undertaking. And it has stayed in there throughout all the iterations of education funding that have flowed through the six COVID relief bills that Congress has passed thus far, including this one that was just signed into law on Friday. So after that, we moved more toward a trying to create a program that would provide direct relief for school bus contractors that were really suffering because of districts that had either not paid their contract at all or only partially paid it during the school closings. And we had a bill called the CERTS Act that was introduced in early July. And we spent most of the last half of last year advocating for that bill that we ended up getting $2 billion in the December legislation that is eligible for school bus contractors of all sizes as a 100% grant, no repayment requirements to help fill the shortfalls of when districts did not pay you. It is run out of the Treasury Department. We have had several meetings with both Treasury and DOT, who is a consultative agency on the program. They are setting it up as we speak, and we are very hopeful that they will be releasing the grant criteria for that program very, very soon so that school bus contractors can will be directly applying for those funds with the Department of Treasury. And we are continuing in 2021 to try and get augmented funding on top of that $2 billion, get, a, get more money into that CERTS program, working on that right now, because we are fairly sure that $2 billion will not be enough to address all contractors' needs. And there's also eligibility in that pot for motor coach operations and private U.S. flag small passenger vessel. So we had asked for 10 and we will be trying to see if we can get another $8 billion into that program in the next infrastructure bill, as we know that school closings are still ongoing and contractors are still impacted by that. Yeah, and I know, you know, so much work, you know, that went into, you know, not, not only the CARES Act, where we were able to utilize, you know, our virtual grassroots lobbying effort, but also, you know, with the CERTS Act. But there are other issues that still are kind of top tier issues for 
you know, NSTA, including the STOP Act and the School Bus Safety Act. And as we transitioned from the 116th Congress to the 117th Congress, do you have any update on those two specific issues? Sure. Those safety and regulatory issues affecting school buses are usually what occupy most of our resources. And actually, even last year in the middle of the pandemic, the House decided to do its surface transportation reauthorization bill, where most of that policy is decided on those types of issues. So in the middle of, we released the certs bill and the House was marking up a basically shorthand, the highway bill is what it's kind of shorthand called. We had to shift and do double duty and push COVID relief bill as well as work on those safety issues. That bill ended up passing the House in June, but it never went anywhere in the Senate. So it it did die and will be resurrected this year. And all of the issues that we worked on, we will have to re-engage on those issues this year. And that is the next big issue that is uh, facing us uh, right now as the Congress is going to turn its attention to an infrastructure bill, which will likely include the surface transportation reauthorization. And those issues, as they boil down for NISTA members, include a whole myriad of safety mandates that have been proposed in a bill that's been a perennial bill over the last few Congresses, and we expect it to pop up again, which is a bill that has 11 new mandates on school bus contractors. Everything from requiring seatbelts on all new large school buses, (coughs) requiring, excuse me, three types of fire equipment, including fire suppression equipment, engine firewalls, and interior flammability on your seats. There's requirements in this bill for event data recorders, for electronic stability systems, for automatic emergency braking. It revives the sleep apnea rule, which we were successful in pushing back on several years ago. Revive brings that back to create a separate regulatory rubric for testing treatment of your drivers that might have obstructive sleep apnea. It creates a training requirement for 30 hours of behind-the-wheel instruction and even requires a study of motion-activated detection systems and safety belt alert systems, the latter which is not even created yet. So we are estimating the cost of that bill to be a minimum of around 30000 per vehicle that it would add to the cost of a new bus. So we have been engaged in many discussions on that. We were successful in the House bill last summer in that the House took all of the NSTA positions, and that was fortunate. And they tell me they're going to start from that bill this year. So we're very hopeful that we can hold uh, a lot of the compromise positions that we came up with. There are additional issues involved in this bill that we'll be facing. There have been proposals to increase the minimum insurance limits per vehicle. There have been proposals to weaken the protections in transit law that protect school bus operators from unfair competition from 
federally funded public transit systems in the provision of home to school transportation and charter work. So we will be having to defend those. We also, as you all know, you all enjoy a full exemption from the federal fuel tax. And uh, whenever they do this bill, we have to really watch that and make sure that that is protected when they are searching for coins in the couch to pay for this bill. And unfortunately, the Highway Trust Fund does not even support current levels of funding. They have had to dip into the general fund for the last 15 years just to make the highway transit portion whole. So that's just a sampling of the many, many issues we are beginning to engage on this year. They're hoping to mark up these bills by May, June and get them passed both chambers and get them enacted by September 30th. They'll be accompanied by other infrastructure issues. The Biden administration has very ambitious plans to add some pretty significant funding for to this bill that would include your non-traditional transportation funding, things like broadband uh, funding for ports, funding for water systems, funding for the electric grid. Um, they, I mean, they're looking at what I call big eye infrastructure, not just traditional roads and bridges and transit systems. And they have a very, very aggressive climate change agenda that is does have a specific school bus proposal to ensure that every school bus in America would be a zero emission bus by 2030. That is a goal that they have set. And by zero emission, they mean electric or hydrogen fuel cell. They do not mean propane or natural gas. We have begun to have many, many conversations on that proposal to try to ensure that they understand uh, the impact that would have on an industry that currently we only have 1% of the fleet is electric and all the additional costs involved, the charging infrastructure, the storage infrastructure. There are a lot of concerns, the range issues, the cold issues, the life cycle of these buses that we are bringing to the administration and to Capitol Hill. And uh, those meetings are ongoing. And I we don't know yet if this will be in the form of mostly incentives or grants or tax credits or a combination. So far, we don't think it's going to be an absolute mandate, which is what we're hoping to avoid. But that all obviously is occupying a big chunk of our advocacy time as well. Yeah, no uh, rest for the weary, (laughs) especially with respect to what's going on in the nation's capital. And, you know, just been such an intense effort over the, you know, the past. Fortunately, you know, we've been able to work with prime policy and and gotten a lot of positive you know traction on on a lot of these issues you know moving forward so i think that's that's great i think one of the areas that folks may not be too familiar with is presidential transition and you know everybody sees the inauguration on january 20th and and the coverage but there's a whole level or many layers to that transition as it plays out you know, in the, in the space that you operate in. Why don't you just give them a brief idea of a presidential transition and what that actually means as you, you know, as you work in that space? Sure. It is a presidential transition, particularly from one party to a different party, is a major 
ordeal. And once, even though obviously there were a lot of legal issues surrounding this election and lawsuits and contesting the results in many states, I mean, we woke up on November 7th as a firm and said, we need to prepare for an incoming Biden administration, which it ultimately ended up being the case. And what that involves is uh, we had people really being in touch with the Biden team even before the election. And then that activity increases significantly after the election with my Democratic colleagues who keep tabs on who every agency has a transition team. The president has his senior transition team. And they really begin on that first day, they begin to figure out both the policies that they want to push, as well as the people that they will be appointing to key positions to push those policies. And both those issues are really, really critical for a government relations firm like us to keep tabs on and to inform our clients of, okay, these are the, this is the infrastructure plan. This is the transportation plan. This is the environmental agenda. And here, you know, first he picks his cabinet and then he picked, there are a total of about, I believe, 3,500 political positions within the executive branch of the government that the president controls, either Senate confirmed positions or or just simply appointed positions. And I will say to the Biden team, they were very well prepared. They were very efficient. They put people in agencies sooner than any other president has. And this is, there is a presidential transition office that tracks all of these things. It takes, you know, a while to confirm the cabinet. As you see, we're still at it. We are still confirming cabinet secretaries, even here in mid-March that were nominated in January. And that Senate confirmation process takes a long time. And so the Biden team being very experienced knew that. And so what they did is they appointed a lot more people into agencies on January 20th. Every agency had a cadre of Biden appointees in the agency, even before the cabinet secretary was confirmed. Past administrations have sort of flipped that and done it the opposite way. And waited for the secretary or the head of the agency to be confirmed. And then they let that person have a lot of input on who else would serve in that agency. Biden really flipped that around and has people in charge of basically every agency that do not have to be Senate confirmed people. He could do that with his executive appointment authority. So it has been a lot to track. And that's something that we do as a firm and make sure that we know who's being appointed to these positions. Who do we know in that cadre? And we can begin to have policy discussions with them even before all the confirmations have have been achieved. So it's it's a very major uh, change when an administration changes over. You'll, you've heard the president talk about his first 100 days, that's a very, very common marker for a brand new president. Uh, we just hit day 50 last week, and you're seeing that, you know, their first major legislative accomplishment was this American Rescue Plan. 
1.9 trillion and they're spending this week and next really the entire cabinet is floating including the president and vice president and the entire cabinet are floating all over America over the next two weeks and members of congress are on the democrat side are really touting this achievement as a big marker of of the president's you know president achieving his agenda. It just adds a whole nother layer to the normal work that we usually engage in. Yeah, I'm getting getting tired just listening to <laughs> to all that and, and the challenges ahead, but uh, we're so glad we have you on our side. A couple of things before we wrap up, and one is that uh, you mentioned the bus in and just want folks to know that we will not be scheduling a spring capital bus in, but we are also looking forward to trying to uh, schedule that for sometime in the fall, September, October timeframe. And we'll let you know more about that as things develop. And hopefully the we've got the COVID-19 uh, vaccine being deployed and, and the pandemic will be on the run. And then lastly, Becky, just looking at the NCAA bracket, which was <laughs> <laughs> which was deployed this week and seeing that a Baylor is in the same bracket as John Benish's Purdue team. So you all might meet in the Sweet 16. Unfortunately, Becky, that if you meet and lose to Rutgers, that'll have to be in the Final Four. So you guys will come really close before we take you down. Well, I uh, Prime is a, a very big gambling firm. And we, <laughs> <laughs> um, we have our own March Madness, and we I just filled out my bracket this morning, actually. And yes, of course, I did pick Baylor to take it all. Very proud Baylor Bear. And I, we, we will just see, may the best man win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very politically correct on that. <laughs> but Becky, thanks so much you know, for your time today, as well as your expertise and energy in dealing with these issues. NSTA is well represented in Washington, and we're so proud to have you. So be well, my friend, and good luck to the Bears, except when they meet the Scarlet Knights. <laughs> Thank you, Kurt. And I'll just add with Prime Policy Group bleeds yellow right along with NSTA. We're, we're very, very pleased and happy to represent you to the best that we can. Take care.